Brian Keane here. Thanks for joining me for another in our acclaimed franchise radio shows. Today is pretty special because we've got we've got Greg Nathan with us today. He's the founder of Franchise Relationships and a well-respected, um, uh, I suppose, t- teacher, really, and mentor um, internationally, certainly North America, Europe, and in Australia, where he hails from. So he's joining me in another exciting installment of our series, Secrets of Franchise Experts Exposed, where we talk to a number of people who share their philosophies and their mindset about what makes them, and I guess in in, in Greg's place, um, the the organisation and the sector so successful. So without any doubt, this is a must listen for anyone wanting to learn more about business and franchise growth. Um, what I would just say quickly is uh, make sure you've got a notebook ready um, because I'm sure we'll get some really valuable comments from Greg. Um, and uh, to remind people that this is a recording available on iTunes and Spotify and all major platforms. So uh, off, off we are to go. I'll just give you a little bio I've just put together here on Greg's background, because it's quite formidable. If you don't know Greg Nathan, you need to, in my view. He's the founder of Franchise Relationships Institute. He's regarded internationally as, I suppose, the foremost expert on people issues in franchising. He's um, got a broad layer of experience. He's a registered business psychologist, author of several best-selling franchise groups, which books, which uh, you must have on your bookshelf if you're involved in franchising, including profitable partnerships. And many of you listening will be familiar with those because everyone that works with us gets a copy. And uh, he's also the developer of a lot of influential franchising models. The the E-factor is a must-know if you're a franchisor. In fact, I think if you're you're living in the world with people in business, you need to know the elements because it applies whatever you do. And the franchisee wheel of excellence. Um, Greg's the recipient of numerous awards for his contribution to the global franchise sector, including the IFA Crystal Compass Award for franchising leaderships, um, an induction into the FCA Franchise Hall of Fame. Um, and he's, he's been inspiring franchisees and franchisors with his research-based insights into franchise excellence for over 30 years. So uh, I first met Greg, I guess, in the mid-90s. So reasonably early in his career there. So, uh, Greg, delighted to have you here today. Thank you so much for attending. Delighted to be with you, Brian. Um, So, (laughs) a few questions here. Um, You're a veteran of the Australian franchise community. Um, You joined it in Brumbies back in 1978 um, and established Franchise Relationships Institute in 1989. Well, I suppose the first question is what motivated you to launch that business, FRI, way back then? Um, Well, I set out to be a psychologist, Brian. That was my preferred uh, destination. And while I was studying psychology, I got a part-time job at what was the precursor to the Brumbies group. It was called the Old Star Bread Centre. And uh, so I was working, baking in the evenings and studying during the day. And I became quite proficient at the baking side of things. Now, that was a company-owned network, and they decided to franchise. And what I found fascinating was the when the stores changed from a company-owned manager to a franchisee, the attitude of the franchisee was very different. They had a, a passion, they, they've obviously got skin in the game, and they were a lot more fun to work for. So I built a bit of a relationship with some of the franchisees, and um, I got a call from... I stopped doing the baking work and I studied, you know, focused on my psychology. I actually had a job at Monash University in uh, doing research on people who had had strokes. So I, I was doing neuroscience and I got a call from a franchisee who said, would I be interested in being his business partner? It's something sort of left field that uh, got me thinking. And I, I thought, you know what? This could be a really interesting experience for me to to experience small business. My father and my grandfather and my great grandfather were all small business operators. And so I took the plunge and became a franchisee with John. We had three stores and um, I found it very rewarding, very interesting. But I found out later on that I got a reputation that used to call me the franchisee from hell. 
because I was always questioning and challenging, you know, the the, the franchisor strategies and what they were doing and how they could be doing things better. So the managing director sat me down one day and said, well, if, if you think you're so good, <laughs> would you like to come and work for me and, and you can show us what you got sort of thing. So I took up that challenge and I, I flipped onto the other side of the fence, so to speak, and joined the franchise or team. Well, to my shock and horror, um, all the things that I had assumed about the franchise or team were, were largely wrong. I had assumed that they had an easy life. They just sat around all day and, you know, I'm paying all the royalties and things and they're just strategizing and stuff. And I realized how damn hard work it is to be a member of a franchise or team. The constant criticism that you receive, the constant stress, worrying about a hundred franchisees and their families and their livelihoods. And inevitably, you in any franchise network you're going to have 20, 10 to 20% of franchisees that are really struggling that are not profitable and that's to, to a franchise or with a conscience that's a worry because you don't want to see people go broke so i found the stresses and the challenges of being a franchise or uh, formidable now here's the rub brian there was nothing to help uh, i looked for books i looked for courses there was nothing and I went to a couple of courses which were really very theoretical and academic and I thought this is just not right. So I decided in 1989 that I would set up an institute that would provide really practical useful services to franchise or teams and franchisees on how to succeed in franchising from all the things I'd learned. And I, of course I had the psychology background as well. So I was, I was able to marry my psychology training and understanding at that point, along with my practical experience as a franchisee and a franchisor. And so it was all about, you know, the people issues in franchising. And as you know, Brian, it's all about the people. It's all about the relationship. <laughs> if relationships are going well and you're feeling good in yourself, life is easy. But when the relationships are struggling and trust is low, it's very hard to get things done. So that's what I decided to specialise in. Yeah, I'm so grateful. I'm not the only one. There would be thousands who say, I'm so glad you made that decision then, Greg, because um, the, re the result of your unusual combination of experience and the way you accumulated those skills, particularly multi-store franchises as well, you've, you've had your foot in all the puddles, <laughs> all the swimming pools, if you like. So you're able to draw on that. Um, and I certainly, uh, certainly commend that. So I suppose when we look over that period of time, life has changed. Goodness me, in, in so many ways, it's hardly bears talking about. We all see lots of comments about the way we're all digital these days and so on. But what are the big changes you've seen in this last 30 or so years in the franchise sector, Greg? Well, look, the first thing is change itself, Brian. Um, previously, um, Life was moving a lot slower when, when I certainly started in business. And you may go through a massive change program once, perhaps once every five years as a franchise or some sort of a repositioning of your brand or introducing, you know, a new pro significant new product range. And uh, that was regarded as normal. Well, these days we're introducing initiatives and changes probably every three to six months. So it's relentless. So I think um, this the, the whole science of how do we adjust to change has become a central part of being successful, whether you're a franchisee or a franchisor. Now, I was just talking to one of my clients this morning. He's got a 2000 strong franchise network in America, and they've just introduced some changes to the way their field consultants are supporting their franchisees. And he was saying how the franchisees are really uh, reacting to this and um, they're having to think very carefully about how they introduce the changes and get the buy-in. So it's just an example of um, the constant change that we're all facing. And you mentioned earlier, you know, about the, the digital, but it's not just digital. It's just, uh, at the moment also, if we overlay the pandemic, it's introduced a need, you know, for more innovation and compromise where you've got supply chain problems 
at the moment and, and staffing problems where people have to adjust the way they run their business. So that would be one thing. Uh, you mentioned a moment ago about multi-unit franchising. Uh, I've definitely, there's definitely been an increase. So this is where, you know, a single unit franchisee likes the network and decides they want more. And so they want to buy more units or territories. Uh, in America, this is very common. Um, it's not uncommon for a franchisee to have 100 units or 100 stores or territories. Um, in Australia, it's typically around, you know, three to seven that we would have the, the multi-unit owners running and operating. But I think you'll find this will increase. So that would be another trend that we've seen. Um, I'll, I'll just pause if, if you want just to ask me anything more about that before I move on to any other trends that I've, I've got there. Are no, I, I think we're running well. I suppose an observation there with this multi-unit situation is in the States, you've literally got corporates as multi-unit franchisee companies, whereas in Australia, it's still the person who was perhaps the initial franchisee with one of the chains like Subway or Maccas or whoever it might be that has just grown, but they haven't taken that significant step to being that, that higher level, I suppose. Is that something you see evolving in Australia as well? I do. <clears throat> yes, I do. I, I see that... Um, franchisees as they grow, you know, get up to eight to 12 units, they have to actually build an infrastructure and become a CEO, like a real CEO, with their own operations manager, with their own field support teams, and so on. Yeah, so they'll, they will build an infrastructure and, and may even, <clears throat> excuse me, they may even also bring in um, investors to help them raise capital to, to, to buy more units and so they're, then they're going to be answerable to, to shareholders as well. So that's definitely a trend. The other thing that we've noticed, I suppose it's related to this, is the corporatisation, more sophistication. If we look at the franchise or teams, as um, franchise companies are becoming larger, we used to get away with having the entrepreneurial founder running things. Uh, these people are typically emotional, passionate, um, have very deep experience in the in the technical side of their business, but when it comes to making more strategic, objective decisions, they can struggle. So, we're seeing more professional managers coming in uh, to run the units. Uh, sorry, to run the organisations. Um, also, um, outside investment in franchise networks. So either franchise companies going public or bringing in venture capital uh, is another trend that I see. So the management team are now answerable to external investors, which can bring additional pressures uh, in regard to delivering profitability and maintaining share price and so on. That, that can be a distraction and, and take their eye off the main game, which is really about customer satisfaction and franchisee profitability. Um, so that would be an another trend that I've noticed and also the changing ownership of franchise networks. So it's not unusual um, for some of these longer franchise networks to have changed hands three or four times. And that is a challenge for the franchisees who it's like getting new parents every yeah. three to five years <laughs> who, who may have different values or a different modus operandi. Yeah, one of the big things. No, I think there's a whole there's a whole conversation, if not a series of them, about IPOs and you know public companies running franchise groups and so forth. So we won't go there. I think we all we all know well, let's, some. Let's of the yeah, well, let's go there for a little bit because I think it's an important topic. It's not necessarily a, a bad thing, providing the owners understand <clears throat> that. Running a franchise group, <clears throat> they've got to get the buy-in of the franchisees, and um, they've got to un they've got to ensure the franchisees are profitable. It's not just about their profitability, and I think there are some venture capital groups and investment groups that really do understand this and do a really good job. But I think a, a warning to any anyone who's looking to invest in a franchise network, if you're looking to make quick bucks and to um, strip out the, the costs and maximise the profit of the franchise group so you can sell it on, that's not a good motivation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Signed up for 10 years. Yeah. 
Yes. So they're in yeah. it for the long term. So there needs to be that shared ethic. Yes. Yeah. It's when the shareholders call the shots because they want their dividends every year. That's uh, something you just can't maintain in the same way. So, uh, yeah. Sustainable, um, not if it's at the expense of the health of the culture and the network. Yeah. 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 Um, I love the term franchise partners as opposed to franchisees. And uh, I think it was you that introduced that term to me. How did you arrive at that? And, and, and what, what was the, you know, what was the process? Yeah. Interestingly, uh, I have had some debates with some lawyers about this because they're saying it's not a partnership. Ah. <laughs> um, I'm using the, the term partnership as a concept of where people have got shared respect, shared responsibilities to make something work. Um, I have used the analogy of a marriage. I know it's a little, it can be a little bit stretching it, but in a marriage, it's long-term. Um, the parties have different, you know, responsibilities and roles. They bring different things to the relationship. And that, that, in my mind, that's a successful marriage. And my father used to always say, you know, in a marriage, each party has to go 55% of the way <laughs> work well so i think that spirit of we're in this together is is what i'm trying to get at with the partnership word yeah 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 i i, I must say i i i love it and i use it extensively because i think it's a bit like saying you sell franchises you know that to me is more like a car yard um what you do is recruit franchisees and in the same way franchise partners implies that relationship where it's more than just you're having a franchisee, which is generally taken as being subordinate. Um, yes. but, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> Interesting to know a lawyer's points of view. Of course, they would have. <laughs> it's inevitable. Um, so, so for, I could just all... add something to this, this uh, discussion, Brian, about partnerships and so on. Uh, there's a concept called duty of, I think, is it? Um, duty of care or something? Duty of care, yeah. So like as a professional, I have a duty of care to my, my clients as a psychologist, right? And what that means is that, I, that I'll keep their best interests at heart. Now, legally, <clears throat> franchisors don't have that in the franchise agreement. They don't legally have a duty of care. This has been an interesting discussion, actually, even at the legal level. But I do believe that franchisors do have a duty of care when, when they take, you know, 300, $500,000 of someone's money and say, look, give us your money and we'll look after you and we'll, you know, we've got your back. That really needs to follow, be followed up with action. And, um, and I think that's also in that spirit of the partnership. Yeah, I'm not strong on some elements of law, but within the amendments to the Trade Practices Act, as it used to be, there was that that uh, that legislation brought in only a few years ago, which uh, addressed that about fair contracts and so forth. And uh, yeah, that's yeah. something that uh, I yeah, think uh, the, you know the parties have to be fair and reasonable and, and so on. And that's been difficult to to define. Mm. I think mm. this idea of duty of care you've got to do you, you need to be doing the right thing by by your partner and not just making self serving decisions that benefit you. And that may disadvantage them. Yeah. I think that's the spirit of what we're talking about. It, there's, a, there's a key five-letter word, I think, that comes in here. And without it, you, you, you don't get success. It applies a lot in life to, to people who are responsible. And that's, that's trust. Mm -hmm. um, once you've got trust, if you can maintain it, then you can, you can overcome some of, the, some of the hazards and so forth that come along the way. Yeah, and, and I'd add another seven-letter word. I think it's seven letters, and that's <laughs> respect. Yes, yeah. Trust and respect. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, from your observations, what, what are the key ingredients that a franchisor needs to provide their franchise partners um, to optimise their success? Okay. Well, let, let, let's just take this partnership analogy and we'll, we'll build on this because it's a, it's a great question. So I would say that the franchisor and the franchisee have different accountabilities. Now, accountability is something that can't be shared. Responsibility you can share. So we can say, look, we're all responsible for, you know, the health of the culture. We're all responsible, um, you know, for looking after, um, you know, the, the customer experience and so on. But ultimately the, 
the franchisor has to be accountable for certain things and the franchisee has to be accountable for certain things. So if we talk about franchisor accountability, I would say the first thing is leadership. Now, uh, what I mean by, by leadership, it's not command and control management. It's where you are, lead, I call it leading with credibility. So you're making evidence-based decisions that are in the interests of the brand and the franchisees and that the franchisees will follow. Because if you don't have followers, you're not a leader, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what does that mean? Well, a good leader is trustworthy, um, is honest. A good leader um, has the um, competence and makes evidence-based decisions. Um, and a good leader genuinely cares. This comes back to this duty of care. Genuinely cares for the success of, of the people that they're leading. So that would be the first um, accountability of a good franchisor. The, the second area is to do more with the support they're providing. So uh, they need to provide relevant support. Uh, franchisees are gonna be at different stages of their business growth. So for instance, a, a multi-unit franchisee that's been in the business for nine years and has five units has a different type of support need than a single unit franchisee that's been in the business nine months, for instance. So the franchisor needs to have processes and systems where they can meet the needs of all the franchisees in the network. And there's a number of ways they can do that through training, through support, through field support, conferences, um, peer support groups, and so on. Uh, and the, the, the third big area I would say is to do with um, really looking after the brand and making sure that it's like being the custodian of the brand. Nobody does anything that can damage the brand and the brand is the reputation. And the reason why this is so important is that because we're all sharing a brand, if one person, and it doesn't even have to be a franchisee, it could be a staff member of a franchisee who does something really bad, that damages a customer or, or delivers a really bad customer experience, then in theory, the whole network's at risk because that customer can then go online. These days, it's a lot easier for, for people to make disparaging remarks, which are very, can very quickly go viral. Um, and so the franchisor's got to keep a close eye that nobody is doing anything that could damage the brand. And of course, the franchisor itself shouldn't be doing anything that could damage the brand. Yeah, important point. That's the basis of all the goodwill that we're all paying for, basically. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. So um, I suppose my key area of interest and that of a lot of listeners is that of support, field support and so forth, because in growing a franchise group, it's the franchise partners, the franchisees are your growth um, area. Pretty, pretty simple as that, really. So if we look at ambitious franchisors who, who perhaps grow from a small base, people who uh, decide they want to expand, they, they may have just bought an existing franchise group, um, you know, maybe a small group, or maybe they're building their own model, expanding it. How do you recommend they structure their, their support model? Yes. Moving forward, so from the ground up, really. All right, well, the first thing is to, to make sure that the culture within the support office is franchisee-centric. I would call, that's the word I would use, franchisee-centric. So they understand that they're there to serve the franchisees and support the franchisees. And that's a spirit or a, a way that we operate the business that needs to be talked about constantly within their group. Now, for instance, we run a course called Culture of Franchising where we, we train and encourage support office people to have this mentality that you are there to support franchisees appropriately. If the franchisees are supported appropriately, everything else falls into place. Customers will be looked after, sales will go up, the franchisor's royalties will increase, and so the franchisor is gonna you know, be in a better financial position. So that would be the first thing, to really understand that they are in two businesses, they are in the industry that they operate in. So for instance, get what, what would be a typical um, industry that some of your clients work in, Brian? Oh, well, maybe maybe in, in, in restaurants and fast food, that area, for example. 
So if you're delivering food to people, you're in, you're in the food business, the hospitality business, you obviously need to understand occupational health and safety, food, food standards, science, and all that sort of stuff. But you are also in the franchising business. So they've got to be good at both. Mm. And that brings me to the, to the next piece, that as well as understanding that they're in the franchising business and how to communicate and support franchisees appropriately, they need to have really good knowledge about the technical aspects of their business. Now, what, what I've seen is sometimes when a business changes hands, the, the knowledge in the business can leave because the, the long-standing staff in head office can leave. And so you've got a whole lot of people who don't understand the history, the culture, how the business works. That's dangerous. And therefore, it's all left to the franchisees who have often got that knowledge. But that's not their responsibility or accountability to, to lead and, and develop strategies. So really ensuring you've got good technical knowledge in, in the business and that you retain that would be another thing to watch out for. Um, I think the other thing is to really focusing on that the business model works for everybody. So the franchisor needs to be profitable. So they obviously need to, like any business, you've got to keep a close eye on your expenses and your revenues and, and cut your cloth accordingly to make sure that there is profit for the franchisor that they can, so they can reinvest that and get a return for their investment and risk. But the franchisees need to be making money so um, a good franchisor team is constantly pressure testing the business model to say, if the business is running well, and we've got examples, whether it's company owned units or, or franchises that are running well, those people are making money or those businesses are making money and ensuring that the model works. Yeah, I think quite a good tool that um, is out there, uh, some probably five years ago, I think one of your tips that you publish regularly um, you gave information from one of the uh, IFA conferences over in the States about KPIs. Yes. And I think that's the driver for a lot of that information. It's just having yes. the right KPIs. What, what's your observations on those, Greg? Yes, so there's a, a range uh, starting at the very basic level of KPIs to the very sophisticated. So if we look at the basics, there's normally four to five KPI, key performance indicators that would tell you whether a business is in good shape or not. And the franchisor should be very clear on what they are. So for example, you were using hospitality earlier as an example. So what are the biggest costs for a hospitality business? You've got rent and you've got staff and you've got cost of goods. So typically um, KPIs that that business model would be watching very carefully would be uh, staff, rent, and cost of goods as a percentage of revenue. And there should be some benchmarks to say, at this site, you know, if your business is turning over $600,000 a year, your rent should be, could be operating at eight or 12% or whatever it is, your cost of goods. Because sometimes as businesses grow, they can get um, some advantages and efficiencies. Uh, so, but generally there should be some percentages uh, in mind there. Um, there may be KPIs also in relation to customer satisfaction. There's is often a good one. There could be um, average basket size or the average sale per customer is often another typical KPI that's measured. We could probably list out 20 different hmm. KPIs, but I think it's important the franchisor has an agreement that across our business model, we have these four or five that we know are absolutely critical. And the field consultants and the franchisees are constantly measuring, monitoring and benchmarking and comparing how the businesses are tracking against an ideal KPI and also against other businesses of, of a similar size. Now, if we get more sophisticated, you can start looking at, you know, um, net profit or um, often it's known as EBITDA, earnings before interest, tax and depreciation, amortization. And so um, the, the better franchise networks are measuring the EBITDA as a percentage of sales, and they've got targets that the franchisee should be hitting depending on the maturity of that franchisee. So for the first two years, it might be, you know, you're not gonna make any money, you're gonna, you're gonna be zero, and then year three, you should be hitting 5%, year four, you should be up to 12%, or whatever it is, and, and measuring that stuff. Um, also, um, in a good franchise network in relation to KPIs, there's constant training and discussion 
around how do you um, understand and work with the KPIs. So if there is a trend, there's you know six or seven steps to be taken, if it's a negative trend, to improve that. And that's part of their operating model. Yeah, I mean, it's such an easier process these days compared when I go back to my early days in the early 80s in Bedshed, where we used to sit around together as franchisees and, and compare our trading figures each month. And why are you doing this much more pillows and, <laughs> and quilts than we are? You know, that type of thing. Now, these days, with the, with the fact that you can have that access to all the accounting, all these wonderful sort of cloud-based accounting systems just makes a collection of a lot of those KPIs much, much simpler. And there's no excuse for not having them, but what I've seen... That's, that's correct. Um, the, the technology these days makes it very easy. Uh, when I was working for the franchisor, we used to receive a cheque, like a paper cheque, used to come in each week, which was hand, with a handwritten sheet where the franchisee would fill out what their sales figures were for the week, and they would have stapled a cheque of 6.5% of that. And that's how we used to monitor. And of course, you know, it's based on an honesty system. Largely these days, there's a lot more checks and balances and you should be able to know instantly what's going on. Exactly. Yeah. A point of caution that I've, I've realized is some people get carried away. If you've got a CFO, chief financial officer or someone account or someone who's accounting background, they can often end up with too many KPIs and becoming too elaborate for the level of your franchisees understanding. You've got to, you've got to educate, as you were implying earlier, people go through a transition in their first year or two, then by the time they're at year 10, they understand a lot more of those fundamentals. Trying to get them to provide that information at the beginning of the exercise becomes an absolute chore for them. And I think, um, I remember when I worked with Jim's mowing, helping him set up in WA years ago, he, 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 he was the only person I came across then that did all the franchisees' bookkeeping. Mm. He did all their sales. He did all their invoicing. He said, I don't want them working on the weekend or their partner working on the kitchen table doing their bookkeeping. Mm. I want to do it. And fine, they'll pay me. Um, yeah, that, that is love. Yeah, I, I think in the first two years, it is largely for the franchisee about building a team around mm. them that they can trust and rely on and building a client base. It's going to produce that recommendation and return revenue. And then they've normally got the headspace to start looking more closely at their KPIs and being a bit more analytical. Yeah. Now you're quite right when you say franchisees and their team, because it's one way of beginning to clarify the efficiency of your team members. You know, what are they producing in sales per 10 customers or whatever it might be? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, so, I suppose going beyond that, you mentioned in the early, in the start of our conversation about the pandemic and the impact that's had recently. And uh, I think a lot of us thought that be over, it'd be over and done with in nine months. <laughs> and uh, it's almost looking like it's a lifetime experience. But um, so we've seen you know, a paradigm shift in every, literally every business, some negative, some positive. But what do you see as the major impact that it's had on franchising, Greg? Um, well, a lot of this is shared, a shared experience with all humans on the planet, all right? So it's not just franchising. Mm. Yeah. So let's start with that and then we'll narrow it down. Uh, the first thing is just the added stress that everybody's under. Um, I think parents, um, you know, with the added responsibilities they've got now with the schooling of the children and the uncertainty um, of how to look after the kids, um, is, a, is an added pressure. Uh, people working from home. Um, uh, we've worked, we've run a virtual business for, for 11 years, so it was no change for us. Mm, yeah. But a lot of people, that adjustment of where, where do I work from, you know, to have the, the, the space and the focus to do my work without being interrupted or interrupting the, the family. These are some shared challenges that we've all faced. I think the fear of uh, knowing you know, when you meet someone, it was interesting. I had a lunch with a client yesterday and, um, you know, should you shake hands or shouldn't you? Yes. We're all adjusting to this, to this new world of how do we relate to each other or should we even go out for lunch together? Is that a responsible thing to do? Um, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot more people now have had COVID. The, the, the newer versions of COVID seem to be not as serious. 
So it's like just adapting. And um, I was on a panel actually a couple of weeks ago where the panelist was in the middle of having, she just got it two days earlier and was having to deal with the runny nose and the coughing, but she was still working. She was actually delivering a talk while yeah. she had COVID. So I think we're all also adjusting to what's reasonable there. Um, those franchisees, you know, who are employers, particularly the larger franchisees, are really having some pretty serious staffing issues at the moment where um, if there are laws around staff need to be vaxxed and staff don't want to be, then obviously they, they, they may immediately lose 20% of their workforce. Um, some staff are becoming a little bit more testy um, about whether they want to work or not or how much they want to work. And um, I think the power has shifted for the moment more to the the employees, which has been very difficult, I think, for employers are feeling probably that this isn't fair, like particularly if they've tried to do the right thing by their staff and now staff are not pulling their weight. So I think everyone's, all employers are feeling that pressure. We've got the supply chain issues that many groups are facing. Um, and, you know, in a typical franchise group, they may have like five key suppliers. And one of those key suppliers may even be the franchisor. And because of issues outside the control of the supplier, where they can't get raw ingredients, the franchisees aren't able to get their, their products and services to sell. Now that sets up a chain reaction of frustration because the customer is frustrated and is beating up on the franchisee. You promised me that I could have my bed delivered. You know, you were talking about beds earlier. <laughs> uh, if you're a bed retailer, chances are you're having trouble getting supply of beds, um, you know, frames and so on because the suppliers are having their difficulties. And so the customer's having to wait three months for a bed, whereas previously it could be delivered the next day. And then the franchisee is now frustrated because their cash flow is affected and they're beating up on the franchisor, franchisor is beating up on the supplier. I think the, the sensible approach here is we've got to encourage this attitude, we're all in this together and be far more um, collaborative in how we work together to solve these problems rather than people pointing the finger and suing and threatening each other, not helpful. Yeah. So there's a few things that, that I'm noticing. Yeah, um, what I have noticed, um, uh, not, I'm not the only one obviously, is that with, with the issues that came up, particularly when there were lots of restrictions, both in Australia and New Zealand and, and elsewhere, at least that the, I suppose the, the entrepreneurial franchisors took the opportunity to take the issues of getting access, allowing their, their franchisees to work, if it was a service business, that sort of thing. So that was a benefit for people who were franchisees as opposed to individual business owners who really had little power. Um, so I suppose in some respects moving forward, if that is going to be something that's going to be an issue moving on, that's where a franchisor, I think, needs to step up and accept their responsibility to do their best to resolve things like supply chain Yes. Uh, issues and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And they've got a bit extra resources. Cases, we've got clients, they, they just can't do anything. The fact is they can't get particular, it could be a resin or a particular raw material. Mm -hmm. And um, there, there is no solution at the moment other mm -hmm. than patience yes. and um, tolerance and mm -hmm. doing some workarounds. And it's no good, you know, beating up on the franchise or and saying, we're going to no. sue you and so no. No, no. I think we all come under pressure in times of stress like this. So it's uh, whether it's a marriage or a franchise, e franchisor or a franchise partners, <laughs> it's the same. It's the same situation, is it? So the, the strength of the relationship is tested. Yeah. If I could add one other thing, which I don't think I mentioned, is just the whole virtual communication thing. Mm. So previously, obviously, we would be having a typical franchise group would have a national convention once a year. They would probably have three or four state cluster, what they often call state cluster meetings or regional meetings a year, where they would get together for maybe a half a day, have drinks, um, have some workshops and so on. And then they've got their field consultants who are visiting them. Which, that visit would range between, you know, once a week or, or perhaps once a month or once every two months. And then you've got franchisees informally getting together for drinks and, you know, to have discussions over breakfast or whatever. Um, now, uh, due to, for obvious reasons, a lot of that has, has stopped. 
And so I think we need to get smarter and more effective in how we're using digital technology. Mm. Now, at the moment, you're interviewing me and this is a podcast and people are listening to us talking. They can't see us. But I did ask you to leave your camera on. And I, I had a reason for that, Brian. Yeah. So you, you're smiling at me at the moment and I'm smiling at you. And, yes. and what that's doing, it's bringing out the best in me. And I think it's also stimulating you to ask good questions. So it's improving the, the quality of the interaction. And so mm. I think we've got to do our best to, um, to, to sort of recreate the, yeah. nat the natural environment that we're used to in having conversations. Now, if you, if you think about a typical franchise meeting, what I, I'm astounded at is a lot of franchise networks still don't use the features that are available on, if we take Zoom from, Zoom is my personal favorite, and I have no shares in Zoom. I've just found it to be a great platform um, with breakout, really effective breakout room facilities and other features. So there's no reason why we can't have 60 franchisees in a meeting for an hour where the, the management team are having a, a discussion, we're pausing every now and again, people can come off mute or put comments in the chat feed about what's on their mind. The chat feed is actually something wonderful because you can't do that in a face-to-face -face meeting. So in many ways, it's like ha having the facility, if you were in a live conference, to have people passing you secret notes saying, hey, can I just can I just ask you this question? You can't do that, right? So people are just sitting there. Whereas with the chat function on a virtual meeting, you can have this ability for people to be sending each other little messages. And the breakout rooms are the equivalent of running a little workshop or a roundtable discussion. And uh, I think that smart franchise groups are using these functions on Zoom for, mm -hmm. for weekly meetings. Not quite as good, as a face-to-face -face in terms of camaraderie and so on, but almost. Yeah, yeah, it's getting there. And I, I appreciate people like I, like me who are in high eye, you know. I mean, I just thrive yes. on the personal contact, both through the workshops we present and in meeting with people. So it is overcoming that. It's becoming easier as everybody becomes more used to using Zoom. There was a lot of resistance initially, I yeah. think, from a lot of people. But that's but just reality is changing I that think we need to just it's just those but like when you were growing up your parents probably said to you brian say thank you when you know when auntie gives you a present and mm. uh, look people in the eye and there's all these basic communication skills that we learned right now i think we've got to do some of that basic training on zoom and things because the camera is very interesting i think people still don't get the camera is the eyes of the other people and mm. if you're not looking at the camera um, it's like you're talking to someone without looking at them and it can be a little bit disconcerting. So I think coming back to those basics is, can be very useful as well in terms of franchisee and franchise or uh, agreements on how we're going to run these meetings. I think you did one of your tips about that. Um, yeah, done a few. A while back. Yeah, so I might suggest, uh, I'm going to ask Greg for a few bits of advice in a moment, but anyone listening, uh, Go to, go to franchiserelationshipsinstitute.com and have a look at Greg's tips. You'll find there's probably 150 or 180 or maybe more, but there's, there's things like, like we just mentioned, which are really valuable. Just to have a quick read through that can be really helpful in, um, in, in your day-to-day -day operation, your business and so on. So, but thank you for that. And what about the, the one area, I'm, I'm not looking to breach any commercial uh, confidence, I suppose, but where do, what do you see as the opportunities moving forward in franchising with all of these significant changes that we've experienced, Greg? Well, look, uh, whatever business you're in, um, I think the first thing is you need to be uh, COVID-proofing that business. And that's, that's a responsibility of the franchise or the team to be looking strategically about what are the implications of uh, COVID and some of the societal changes on our business model and biting the bullet if necessary and reinvesting back in the business. We've made significant investment uh, commercially in some of our products to, to make sure that they're, they're upgraded. We've got a franchisee recruitment product that we've invested a lot of money and time over the last year. We'll be launching, relaunching that, you know, in coming months. Um, so, so that would be one thing. Um, I think looking after the welfare of people 
keeping keeping um, an eye out for how people are going, checking in on people regularly. I think it's very important. Mm -hmm. And Brian, you made a, a, a generous comment to me at the, when we first logged on together. You said, I'm looking well, and do I look after myself? <laughs> well, look, I, I try to, but to be honest, last year was an extremely stressful year for me personally with the business and keeping up and servicing you know, our clients internationally. And um, I did burn the candle at both ends probably too much. And now normally you can work hard and it's not a problem if you're enjoying it, but if you're working long and hard and it's stressful and you're not enjoying it, that can produce a burnout phenomena. And so I, I had a mild version of that last year and I've learned from that. So I think my advice to everybody is pay close attention to your energy and um, if you do find that you are running a little bit on battery power, that's a sign that to stop, pause, maybe take a break and maybe lighten up your load a bit. Don't be too hard on yourself. Make sure that you're getting um, adequate support from peers and family to, to ensure that, because you, you need to be in it for the long term. Mm. And mm. this COVID is going to continue on for, for a long time. The stress is going to continue. So we need to make sure that we stay well. And look, on my tips, I've put out a lot of tips around positive psychology and tips for staying mentally and physically and emotionally resilient. And I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of material out there that people can tap into. So yeah. I'd be practicing that. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, a great, I'm a great follower of Simon Sinek. You will no doubt know a lot of his, of his material, but something that uh, got brought home to me recently when I realized I was just making that habit, that terrible habit, the little business in my pocket of looking at my emails just too often and uh, i've certainly gone back now to saying i only look at emails during office hours um having a look in the evening to see what nice little booster is there to see if you've got a nice email coming yeah. you can resist it just on that as well it's not just the emails it's the whole social media it really is a mischievous industry the social media and they are in the addiction business and so i think just be very careful that you don't get caught up. I'm talking to everyone here um, yeah. and myself as well. I've, I've noticed sometimes I, I, I'm not a great Facebook user, but I do look at it occasionally. I do have a Facebook site and I've got about, you know, 100 or 200 friends that I, I limit it. But uh, I've, I've noticed some sometimes I've somehow I've been fed some sort of a video that I, and I start watching it because I think, what's this all about? Someone cooking an egg or something. <laughs> and I find before I know it, an hour's gone by and I've been watching these ridiculous people playing practical jokes on each other or something. <laughs> Hang on a minute. This is not a good use of my time. No. no. So I think just be very careful on uh, some of this gamification, social media stuff, that it doesn't infiltrate into your lifestyle too much. Right. Greg, you've had an impressive success with franchise relationships and you've built it into a, a you know, a, a, a corporate model. I remember some years ago talking to you when you were first looking at having a CEO, for example. So you've been leveraging and delegating, which is what, you know, business owners need to do. Um, and um, with regard to that, you've got an extraordinary range of courses and training that you offer. Um, I, I just wonder if you could give us, I mean, there's an awful, there's a lot to look at. But I wonder if you could make some, you know, just recommendations of a, a handful of ones that you think are really worth people yes, looking at people, when they're introducing themselves into the, the training concept to make it more of a habit. Yeah, sure. So the, for the people who are listening, perhaps just think about, you know, where you fit in what, I, what I'm about to say. So let's talk about the franchisor for, the, for, for a start. So if you're a franchise or executive at whatever level, um, we have a program for senior executives we call the Franchise or Excellence Masterclass. And that's, we run that virtually. It's been very successful um, over five sessions, two hours a session, where there's a lot of sharing and discussion about strategically what are the best practices if you're a franchise or in terms of leadership, franchisee support, um, interaction and communication with franchisees, how to run meetings and conferences, how to recruit franchisees successfully and so on. So that's one program we offer. And by the way, these are all provided in detail on our website, which is franchiserelationships.com. 
The, the other uh, program we have is for support office teams. So most franchisors have, have a support office team which can range from five through to 500, depending on how large the network is. And so we run these courses where we teach the support office people how to understand the franchisee psychology and how to support franchisees in a way that works for the franchisee and how to create a franchisee-centric culture, which I was talking about earlier. So that's a two, two hours, and we run that virtually, and we normally take 50 people per course. We limit it to that, and there's a lot of interaction and fun and really useful tools and practical materials in that program. Then we run a course for field consultants or field managers, they're called, or sometimes they're called business consultants, and that's a, a virtual program as well, and it runs for five two-hour sessions. And it's all about how do you support a franchisee more hands-on in terms of coaching. We talked earlier about metrics, you know, how to measure the right KPIs and have those financial discussions with franchisees. So there are three programs that we offer on the education and training front. Now for franchisees, we, we do conference presentations on how to uh, create a profitable partnership with your franchisor, for instance. So the franchisor will often engage us to deliver a conference presentation. We also do a session called the Franchisee Wheel of Excellence on what are the five areas that really successful franchisees do well. And we explain the research behind that and how franchisees can, can practice these things immediately. And they're things like even looking after yourself looking after your personal vitality is one area that we would focus on. Uh, so there, there are a few things that we offer in the education yeah. and training side of things. Well, thank you very much for that. And thanks for the insight and thanks for your time of just gener generously sharing a lot of your experience and your knowledge. It's, uh, it's something that we don't often get the opportunity to tap into, Greg. Um, so uh, just thank you so much. Um, thank you everyone for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. Remember, you can go to franchiserelationships.com if you want to look up any of Greg's information. And I would recommend that you subscribe to his regular newsletters as well. Um, so having said all that, um, until next time, uh, Greg, thanks again. Thank you so much for coming along. Bye, everybody. Thanks, Brian. Cheers, everyone. See you when we have our next Franchise Radio Show. Yeah.